welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. This week's episode is chock full of goodies again. First, an interview with the delightful director, Christian Petzold, whose new movie comes out June 4th, and then a conversation with writer and critic Bruce Bennett. Bruce and I know each other from a while back when we wrote for the same daily. Here, we discuss the director, Bud Bedeker, and his tightly wound westerns from the 1950s, Seven Men from Now, and The Toll Tea. Bruce has a very funny story about interviewing Bedeker and their later close encounters. Bruce also shares insights about story mechanics from his current job, writing for a true crime TV show. The conversation went a little long and was so much fun that I'm going to publish it in two parts. But before we hear from Bruce... I grabbed some time with Christian Petzold, the award-winning German director of Transit, Phoenix, Barbara, and now Undine. Undine is about a historian of Berlin, played by the actress Paula Baer, who we follow after she and her boyfriend break up in the opening scene. Undine gives regular lectures in tours of the Municipal Museum, and eventually she connects with an industrial diver played by Franz Rogowski. This being a Petzold movie, There are layers of history and myth that haunt the main plot, and the romantic bonds are complicated by the fact that Undine just might be a figure from ancient legend, a water nymph who must kill lovers who leave her. For our interview, I reached Petzold at his office in Berlin over Zoom. He mostly spoke in English, but for a couple of questions, you'll hear some German and the translator. All right. Is this your office? This is this is my office. Uh, it's uh, in the same house, uh, like our private apartment or a private flat. But uh, when the kids are very young, it was very hard to uh, work uh, in our apartment because when you're reading or you're working, you are with your body, you are in their world, but with your mind, you are out of their world. And they thought they thought that my wife and I we uh, are ghosts or phantoms, and therefore I have to rent a. Uh, this office since 25 years I'm sitting here. This is part of the library here. Yeah? It, I don't want to pretend that I'm intellectual, but it's this is the only position <laughs> I have with the computer. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> one, one accumulates books over the course of, of life, so that, hap- that can happen. But actually, it's funny. You know, one thing I was just thinking about, uh, about Undine is that it's almost as if you kind of smuggled in uh, an essay film in a dramatic film in a way, uh, because you have these, these lectures. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, how you chose to have kind of really text or speech heavy sequences, you know, because it, it does something to the rhythm of the movie and it's, it's a, a big burst of information in a way. Ich hatte vor vielen, vielen Jahren einen Film gesehen und in diesem Film äh, sieht man ein junges Paar und dann geht, das, äh, geht die junge Frau arbeiten und diese Arbeit sieht man in Echtzeit. Okay, I saw many years ago a film about a young woman who goes to work and you see the, that part of her life, the work, in real time. Und diese, diese Ver- Vermischung, dass das Kino, diese dichte Zeit des Kinos, die Liebe, der, die Entscheidung und dann plötzlich die Arbeit in Echtzeit, das hat mir sehr gefallen. And I like very much the confrontation between the artificial or tight time of the film and then with real time. Und wenn die Paula Bär sagt, wenn du mich verlässt, muss ich dich töten, und dann hören wir die Musik von Bach, dann ist das Kino. When uh, Paula says, if you leave me, I will have to kill you, and we hear the Bach music, then it's cinema. 
Und dann sieht man plötzlich ihre Arbeit. Ja? Die Arbeit ist echt. Ja? And then you suddenly see her work and that is real. Jetzt plötzlich nach ein paar Minuten hören wir, denken wir nicht mehr über, über Cinema, sondern wir denken über Arbeit und über die Stadt Berlin. Ja? And after a little while we stop thinking about cinema and instead think about work and the city of Berlin. Und das hat ja irgendwas miteinander zu tun. And it has something to do with each other. Das hat mir irgendwie, finde ich, das, das liebe ich am Kino. This is what I love about cinema. Which film are you talking about where you see a woman, you know, doing her work? It's not, it's not John Dielman, <laughs> is it? Oh, der, der, der John Dielman war sehr, uh, was, uh, this movie was very important for me by Chantal Ackermann. But it's the movie by Benoit Jacot, Le Fil Seul. It's a situation in a, in, a, in a bistro in the morning. And there's a young girl and a young boy. And the young girl says, I'm pregnant. What can we do? And he says, we are too young to be a family. And she says, I have to work. Yeah? And in 25 minutes, I'll come back and uh, I have a break, a breakfast break. And then you have made your decision. And then we see her 25 minutes working in a hotel as a chambermaid. Yeah? A little bit like this. And she comes back and there's a cut. And then you see the, uh, the line two years later and she has a child, but she's alone. There's no boy. Yeah? So this, but this oh, wow. 25 minutes of working and 25 minutes of, of a conflict has something to do with each other. And for me, it was in uh, um, the, the story of Berlin. Yeah? It's the story of uh, Berlin has no real history. It's a very modern city. It's 150 years old. It's a city built on, on end industries. It has no myths and legend of its own. Yeah? It, she, uh, Berlin has to import everything. Yeah? And Berlin destroys all the all the swamps, yeah? all uh, uh, all this, uh, the lakes, all the forests, yeah? because they, they build up their houses and in the industry and so on. And so all the myths and legends, the characters, myths and legends, they don't have a house anymore. They have to work. This was the idea. Now they have to work. And, and talking about the city, they have to live in. Oh, it's oh, English. Wow. I forgot it. Oh, Claudia, it's Hopefully the translator doesn't get paid by the word for translating, right? <laughs> I'm also curious, I mean, in terms of the, the, the city and the relationship, you know, it sort of reminded me of how, you know, when you're, you, you have a, you know, a, a breakup or some relationship, you associate it with certain places, and then you can't always go back to those places because it, it triggers too much. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that was really interesting to me, that kind of mapping of personal history on, onto things. But in a way, she has a sort of escape though. I mean, she's a tragic figure, but doesn't she sort of have an escape because she can return to sort of her origins? Yeah, this is, erstmal ist es so, ich finde, dass uh, ich, ich liebe im Kino, wenn das Kino immer wieder an dieselben, die Geschichten wieder an dieselben Orte zurückkehren. I love it very much in, in cinema when stories keep returning to the same places. Then irgendetwas is passiert. Something happened there. And, and the difference is the story. You have a bistro or a, a, a small cafe. Yeah? And uh, you have it two times. You are in, in, in front of a fish tank two times. Yeah? And something is different. In the first, there was a diver in the, in the fish tank. And the second one, you have this from the Eastern Islands, this uh, sculptures. Yeah? So, 
something's happened. And this, the difference is the story. This is the idea. For Undine, she has to go back all time of her whole life, since centuries. She has always restart and there is no difference for her. Because it's always the same. There's a man, he's, he, the man, uh, all, you know, all the men who are going to prostitute says, uh, uh, I want to put you with me, take you out here. Yeah? I want to marry you. Yeah? But they, they threw the, the, the woman away after a time. Yeah? So it's Undine. She's always, uh, she's always betrayed since centuries. Yeah? So for her, there is no difference. This is a story. Yeah? When you have no difference, you have no story. You are, yeah? so, and she wants to have a difference. Yeah? And this is the story of this movie, Undine. At the end, when she's going back yeah, into un, uh, underwater after she killed, she, uh, she, she realized the, the curse. Yeah? This, it, she realized the curse. But there is a difference this time. And from this moment on, she, is, she has a story by her own. This is, I think, a little bit the, the metaphor, like the books here in the, in the back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask uh, about Paula Bear. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you'll be working more with her. What, what qualities, you know, what's special, specific about her? You know, one thing I noticed just recently looking through uh, her photos from her past roles, she can look so very different, you know, she, you know, obviously makeup or whatever costumes, but it's striking to me. Um, but I wonder what, what for you is the different qualities? Yeah, you know, she's 25 years old and uh, one hour ago, because Undine, it's more than one year ago, and so I had to, to look at the photos again to make to prepare myself for these interviews. Yeah? <laughs> and because I'm working on other things and I have to, to uh, remember. Yeah? And I, yeah. there, there I saw all the photos by Paula Bear yeah? from in Undine. And some, on some photos she's 13 and on some photos she's 45. It's a quality I think you can find in the in the American movies or the Italian movies and France movies in the 40s and 50s. You have their actors, actresses who are 20, like, like uh, 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 the, woman, uh, the, the wife from Humphrey Bogart. Forgot the name. Oh, Lauren Bacall. Lauren Bacall. Yeah. Yeah. She's 19 in To Have and Have Not. Yeah? But she looks, <laughs> she, she, got, she got a hit on her face. Yeah? And in this moment, she's 43. Yeah? And it's so... Uh, this, this, there's something to do with, I think Paula knows many things about life. Yeah? Mm. She's, she's young, but she has a big experience. I'm really sure. I don't want to know that all. That's not my, my thing. I don't, yeah, we are, we are friends, but I, uh, I, I'm, I'm respectful. Yeah. So. Well, that, that sounds a little like Undine actually. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, it was when when I gave her the script. Yeah, she gave the answer some hours later. I have written it for her. I must say, yeah, it's yeah. something to do with with my experience I have made with her and Franz Rogowski in transit. It's the the whole script was uh, uh, written by me with with this uh, in, images of uh, Paula and Franz. I see. I see. And uh, since you since you mentioned uh, you're working on the next project, what is the next thing that you're shooting? What, what stage are, are you at right now? 
Yeah, because you know we have a pandemic break here in in Germany, and uh, I don't want to shoot with people who have to test each morning and uh, who can't kiss and can't touch their skins and so on. And so I have to make a decision to shoot this whole thing next year. It's uh, the translated uh, title is the lucky ones. It's with polar bear. Also, it's a it's a story about uh, it's a, a summer of love and a. The forests are burning, and also the hearts of the protagonists, and the uh, the fires in their hearts and in the forests are out of the con out, out of control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hmm? it sounds almost inspired by by California or something. Yeah, it's a little bit like, but we have the same problem in Germany too. Yes, it's uh, oh, I know California is a bigger problem because Germany is very wet. Yeah? But uh, so if this wet. Uh, landscapes in Germany are also in a dangerous situation because of uh, the dryness. It's um, it's yeah. it's a story that has something to do with this. And after this, I make a crime story in Berlin with other actors with a little with with uh, with a little break. I have written two scripts. I want to shoot next year two movies, like uh, John Ford in yeah. his best times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the name of my podcast is "The Last Thing I Saw." So I'm curious, what, what was the last thing you saw in either at home? I guess that would probably be at home, right? The most recent movie you saw. Oh, the, the, uh, what, the last uh, two days ago, I, I have seen a movie again with, with one of my favorite actors. Uh, and uh, it's Ex, Ex Machina. It's a science fiction story about, uh, 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 yeah. I, I saw it again because I thought about the male subjects and the, and the women as models, yeah? and it's something to do with Undine, I must say. Yeah? And uh, Oscar Isaac is one of my favorite actors. And uh, so I take, I have bought the DVD, like in old times, and I've seen it together with my, with my wife. And it was a fantastic discussion after about the relationship yeah. and sexual relationship between the, the artist yeah? and the actress, yeah? the man behind oh. the camera and the women in front of, about muses and so on. I, I love this movie. It's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's really, really interesting science fiction. I'll just ask a, one last question. Jumping all the way back uh, just to origins, what's, what's your earliest memory that you remember? Uh, in cinema or in life? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking in life. Oh, in life. The, the first in thing I remember was, I think, was a bath, uh, a bath tube. Uh, a plastic bath tube I was lying in. I, I, I remember it. Yeah? it, it you know, in the, at, at the beginning of the 60s where I grew up, all the colors are very ugly in Germany. It's not like in the 70s where you have orange and red and so. It was, it was this plastic, it looks like a Second World War plastic. And uh, I was lying in the bath tube and my mother is cleaning me, I think, with, a, with this uh, washing uh, uh, handkerchief. Yeah? So this is, I think, it's one of my first uh, memories. Yeah? Well, we've, we've come a long way, so. <laughs> we cover a lot of ground. Okay, <laughs> but uh, Christian, thank you so much for taking the time and, and I really look forward to your next movie. Thank you very much. Have a good time. Bye bye.
Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw, another weekly installment where I have a guest and ask them what they're watching. It's maybe the only idea I have, but I found it to be a very fruitful one. <laughs> and this week, I'm, I'm really, really happy to have someone on who we go pretty way back. Please welcome the writer and critic, Bruce Bennett. Thanks, Nick. It's, it's very nice to be, I guess, quote here, end quote. You know, like, I mean, it'd be so cool if we were both on the same porch, but I'll take it. Yeah, I know. This is this is the thing. It, it turns out to be like a, the perfect medium, given that it's the only way since I don't have lobbies or foyers <laughs> of different rep houses. But yeah, I mean, we, I guess our original connection point is the uh, late lamented uh, New York Sun, a New York paper that <laughs> no longer exists. But that's, I think, where we were both writing. And I think that's probably where, where we, we originally got to know it. Is that, that, that's right, I think. I, I think that makes sense. And the New York Sun was, it was, uh, it was an incredible, bizarre sort of journalistic experiment <laughs> um, that, that uh, you know, and it's, it's, where, it's where I met you. It's where I had seen Grady Hendrix introduce all these Kung Fu movies at Cinema Village in the 90s, but I'd never met him until the Sun years. And Steve Dollar, who I actually know from way back, in, in, in any case, it was an incredible sort of, I want to say rogues gallery with the most <laughs> possible affection um, of, of really unique, and whatever, I'm not like tooting my own horn here, but like really unique writers and, you know, people are super affectionate about the culture and stuff that they wrote about, all working for this paper that like, it was so fiercely right wing, you know, and it was just, I remember, I, you know, maybe I like won't. Won't, uh, won't lay this at anybody's specific feet, but there was, I had a conversation with a certain staff member there that will go anonymous who said, it doesn't really matter what you write about uh, because I don't think any of the big wigs here actually read the culture section. Uh, just, just in case they do, don't openly espouse communism. I'm like, got it. No. Yeah. Just, just pretend it's, yeah. Pretend it's the 1950s in that regard and, and, and you'll be fine. Yeah, it was a, a strange, you know, yeah. just one of those strange, um, I, I don't want to, I don't know if the accident is the word, but just the strange environments where people, uh, a number of critics really flourished. I also just a, a, a shout out to Nathan Lee. I think that was his primary post. Um, yeah. And just, yeah, like people mentioned, you know, all writing really sharp and, and it also at lengths. Uh, that weren't really at possible at, at uh, sort of a, other publications. Um, I think I wrote, I, I don't know, like a, this is a lot for what it was, but like a thousand words about some James Benning landscape films that were at, at anthology. These are literally movies <laughs> where, you know, he pointed the camera at the sky um, and they're beautiful. And, you know, my our, our editor, I think... For both of us, Matt, Matt Oshinsky ran it. I think it was even like on the front page of the section. And then on top of it all, he went to see it. And I, I, will, always, I will always love him for that. He went to see it at Anthology. Uh, I don't know if it ended well, but uh, I, that, it was a great, great place for that. And so it was, an, it was a nice, uh, a nice uh, few years or whatever it was. <laughs> well, I, you know, my, my journalism career is basically, I, 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 I for, for such as I don't really, I'm not really in that arena anymore. And I'm, I can't honestly say that I'm unhappy about it. And I can honestly say it was perfect timing because like writing for a daily in that way, I just, I don't think it really exists anymore. It certainly doesn't, you know, obviously the sun is gone, but I think even, even though like the more successful business models that the sun was trying to follow, like 
they're not the same either. Right. But Matoshinsky, I mean, he just basically, I've done a couple of things for the previous guy. Matt came in and it was so flattering. He read through a bunch of other, you know, a bunch of freelancer stuff and got in touch with me independently. I had only actually gotten in there because of Nathan. I met Nathan at a, a press screening for Soderbergh's Solaris. Oh, wow. And we got talking at a bar across the street. Him and me and my friend Marjorie Sweeney, who used to be Bruce Goldstein at Film Forum's um, uh, publicist. Oh, yeah. And we, you know, we just were bullshitting and, you know, and hit it off. And the next thing I know, like, uh, you know, I get an email from him going like, hey, uh, you know, reach out to this guy. And, you know, I did a couple of pieces for them. But then Matt actually sort of like put me to work over there. And it was it was an amazing experience. You know, I don't really do that kind of writing anymore, I guess, as I've already said. But I got to say, man, I thought of Matt immediately the first time I ever had to actually edit anybody was doing that. I work on these true crime shows. Maybe, maybe we'll talk about this. I don't know. The, yeah. the, uh, I, and I just immediately I emailed Matt and said, I am so sorry, like for everything that I've ever, like <laughs> really hell is other writers. You know, I mean, I know, I know. And, I, and you've, you've edited me as well. In fact, not, moreover, not only have you edited me, but you caught or the two of us together caught like incredibly egregious lapses in sort of proofreading and stuff that like <laughs> I unfortunately had a tendency to fall back on or fall into. Um, but Matt was just, he was the king, man. He was always so supportive, you know, and then I ended up working, writing for him. And I think you did a bit too, uh, when he went over to the wall street journal. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I think it was called greater New York section. So that, yeah, that was a matter of finding the slightest, New York connection to any film story we already wanted to write, um, which I think I think that's how I managed to interview Lou Reed, uh, which is kind of a story in, in of, it, of its of itself. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I got time. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you my my sort of my only like worthwhile, potentially worthwhile, repeatable Lou Reed story is I wound oh, up yeah. sitting behind him at the movies once. I was uh, sitting behind him and Laurie Anderson at a screening of Phil Carlson's Five Against the House at Film Forum 2. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's great. It, it was coincidentally the third time I wound up sitting behind Laurie Anderson in a movie over the course of 30 years. So <laughs> one one was uh, the first time was 40 Guns when Anthology was still on White Street. Oh, the, the Sam Fuller movie. And then the next time after that was at a screening at the Ziegfeld of uh, Passage to India. So <laughs> that is a great that's a pretty good selection right there. Yeah, no, it was, it was pretty cool. It's, it's a shame you couldn't get me and Laurie Anderson on together. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, do you have, I mean, I, I feel like this is maybe a hallmark of New York film going. Do you have, like, I sat behind or in front of celebrity film goer I do. Stories? Actually, I do. No, I thought you were going to ask if I had one about uh, Lou Reed, which I don't, although I'm pretty sure I have I'd seen him in his movie going gear of the, like, floor length, like, Manfer sort of thing. But... Uh, <laughs> No, but I I do have the sitting behind story, and it is Daniel Day Lewis. And oh, cool! And that was for I believe Mad Max, Fury Road. Yes, <laughs> Fury Road, which for me just sounds like an an oldies album title of some sort. Um, but yeah, Mad Max, Fury, totally. Mad Max, Fury Road. Um, I, I actually, I, I didn't recognize him in the lobby. Uh, Amanda was, uh, frantically gesturing that he was standing next to me and I didn't even notice it. But then when we went in and sat down, he took the seat like three feet in front of us, uh, and was just sitting there. And I think, I think he was with his son, I believe, who I, I think is maybe is, or was a NYU student. So it was just like a, I guess a father son outing, but yeah, we were watching those, insane multi-story car chases and 
I don't even remember what else. <laughs> Al- albino harem uh, in that film. But yeah, that, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> As far as the sightings go, I, I think that my, the one the one I'm proudest of is it, it, actually also in the exact same. Uh, I might even have been the same rows at Film Forum too. I went to see uh, Shadow of a Doubt during a Hitchcock season, the Goldstein program there, and I wound up sitting in front of John Turturro and what I assume was his son. And it was oh. so great because I don't know how long it's been since you've seen Shadow of a Doubt, which is you know justifiably storied movie and yeah. you know alleged to be Hitchcock's personal favorite of his own whatever I you know part of it is that there's there's these really intense periods throughout the film without dialogue and that you know these incredible exchanges of malevolent expression and stuff like that and there's essentially a dialogueless prologue in the movie and it's you know Joseph Cotton's character you know a step ahead of the FBI guys whatever long yeah. story interminable in the at the height of this thing you know it's perfect Hitchcock visual storytelling kind of thing you know the music and everything else I hear John Turturro in his very distinctive accent lean into his son, you know, as there's, as we're holding on a, like an anxious close-up of, of uh, Joseph Cotton. And he, and he sort of whispers, this guy's a great actor. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, can't argue with that. <laughs> that, uh, that, that's a really, that's, I guess that's a pretty touching story as well. I just, actually, I think it was for the, I think it was for the son. I actually talked to John Turturro and he was a very nice guy. But now you were, you were, you were saying that you're not on the uh, journalism beat, although you kind of have return engagement that we'll get to when we talk about yeah. one of the movies, yeah. which I'm really glad is, is happening. But, but now you are, you're, you're writing fiction or is for true crime or I don't know if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah. It's, I, you know, it's, it's, it's whatever we're I, like, we're all trying to be elevated here and not be about labels, but it's, it is actually very hard to pin down. I ostensibly what it is that I work on is, uh, is what they call true crime television. And it's, it, it's, it's sort of the business model such as it is, I think very much has to do with digital filmmaking because it's now possible to shoot relatively credible looking recreations of things relatively inexpensively. And so I work on on these, you know, pretty inexpensively made and, you know, like sort of assembly line uh, things that show up on, uh, you know, what I think a lot of, of uh, digital cable networks have discovered that this kind of programming is relatively inexpensive to to make because it doesn't involve union actors and whatever. They, they say, I'm not union, what, what have you. And people will watch it indiscriminately. There is, a you know, that's sort of that American television viewing demographic of essentially people that have televisions on all the time in every room of their home mm, um, mm-hmm. will pretty much, you know, keep this stuff going as kind of almost like this sort of, it's apropos of you and, and Manolo talking about TV viewing and saying that like so much of it is radio. This, a lot of this stuff literally is radio because it's very VO driven. Oh, yeah. But I, I, uh, I, what they call story produce, which basically amounts to writing, you know, scripting unscripted television. So I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a fiend about, Six act cliffhanging, recapping, VO driven true crime stuff with, you know, these like sort of locked off interviews with, you know, the cops and the victim's family and the guy that wrote the book about the case and the journalist that covered it or whatever mm-hmm. that you see on HLN and ID. The, you know, the Discovery Channel actually has their own like separate true crime network or whatever. But I, I fell into that actually by staying in touch with a friend of mine 
I'm, I'm sorry, your listeners are learning so much about me. The, uh, <laughs> a, a friend, I, I, would, I went to film school like everybody else, and I'd certainly like every other yeah. musician in the East Village that I knew of that era. And I, you know, whatever the breaks <laughs> didn't really come to me in that, that arena. Um, but you know, I did a directing workshop and uh, became very good friends with a woman that was in NYU grad at that time. This is 10 or 15 years after I'd gotten out of NYU undergrad, I actually dropped out. I, you know, I was working as a, a weed messenger at the time. Like, you know, it, was, it couldn't have been more uh, further from my experience. But she was great. And we learned a lot in this uh, workshop. And I actually did some music for her thesis film. And we stayed in touch. And then when I was writing for Matt at the at the Wall Street Journal, I, you know, part of that obligation was to try to come up with things you could write about that nobody else was covering in the arts in New York, which is, mm-hmm. as we both discovered, mm-hmm. is not very easy. Um, and I found out that my friend Elise was working on, I, I knew nothing about this stuff, a true crime show called A Crime to Remember. And it wound up being run by these incredibly smart and incredibly sort of uh, narratively and filmmakingly ambitious people that were, they were hiring essentially independent film directors, you know, like sort of Sundance branded, if that's not a backhanded thing to say, uh, independent film directors to shoot the recreation so that they would look that much better uh, for a previous show that was on ABC. And so I did a feature about that, hit it off with them and wound up getting a job because of that. And I always think of, well, I think of two things, you know, Eddie O'Brien in the end of the wild bunch going, it's not like it used to be, but it'll do. And it's, you know, it's kind of the way I feel (laughs) is it's like, there's a great strip by Drew Friedman, who him and his brother, uh, Drew does a drawing appropriately enough, these almost pointless, uh-huh. perfect cartoons, mostly about the sort of, you know, the kind of uh, detritus of kind of post vaudeville pop culture, uh, you know, movie culture, you know, Three Stooges and stuff. And they did this one about Joe Franklin, you know, who, if you grew up in New York at a certain age, you know who I'm talking about. And if you don't, it's almost impossible to explain. It's essentially a nostalgia yes. talk show host. <laughs> But they did yep. this one with Joe, called Joe Franklin. I think it's called Joe Franklin is a dream walk. And, and I'm sorry, I'll get to the point in a sentence or two here. <laughs> I, the, the conceit of the thing is that Joe is asleep in his huge boxers and he sleepwalks out into Times Square in the late 70s, or early 80s, whenever this was uh, written. And so that what's the sort of the narration that, you know, the story description over, over top of these images as Joe is like stepping over bums and, you know, pimps like marquees with, you know, uh, porno titles on them. Joe is just walking around going, ah, and here's Eddie Cantor playing. And, you know, he's just imagining that like <laughs> that Times Square is the way that it was like, you know, between the wars or whatever. And so I, you know, a big part of my thing working on these shows I mean, everybody's cool and everybody's great and it, the pay's good, you know, and the fact that I work for a daily really helps because it's totally deadline driven. But I, more than uh-huh. anything else, I just, I kind of scrunch my head down and I sort of pretend that I'm, I'm like, I'm at monogram, you know, like, you know, like, like churning yeah. out like, a, you know, like the, you know, like a, you know, Boston Blackie. I, you know, I wish, but like the, you know, oh, yeah. or, or whatever, like the whistler, you know, like, or one of these kind of things. Cause they're, you know, it's pretty blunt storytelling and it's not, you know, but like I said, it's right. or as Eddie O'Brien said, it's not like it used to be, but um, it'll do. And it's, it's, yeah. Song. Yeah. I know, but it's so fascinating to me, the, the mechanics of, of that, just putting together the, the beats and yeah, yeah it just, that we talked a bit about that uh, before we started. The form it kind of dictates how long things can go. I mean, so you, you're kind of crafting to a particular length in, in minutes when you're writing out the scenarios. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's a weird it's a weird formula or lack of formula. It kind of depends on what I'm doing because I've been rewriting other people's uh-huh. stuff more. 
or polishing, as they say. But I, it, there's, you know, there's uh, for the one company that I've been doing the most stuff for, they have kind of a formula of like what X word count equals X number of minutes. And then it's basically down to the editors, um, you know, to, to make it actually fit. But, you know, there's, there's sort of there's notes from above from both the production company that I work for and that pays me and for the network that, you know, they work for and pays them. And then there's just sort of prior scripts. And then there's just this obligation to essentially like parse things out. Everything went from five acts to six acts, which is like that's happened in scripted as well. But, you know, it's it's around 43 minutes and 30 seconds. And, I, you know, I basically you need to recap and you need to sort of hook people recap coming in and you need to hook people going out of each one of these acts. And, I, you know, I, I don't really end up talking with people much about this kind of way and whatever. Last year, I don't really end up talking to people about much <laughs> anything because I don't really see people. But I, on those occasions where I do talk with people about it, I, almost invariably somebody will go, well, then you listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. And the truth is I don't at all. And it's not really interesting to me, but it's not necessary. I, I found it's a perfect use for what's left of my mind in a way, because what comes in handiest is having just seen thousands and thousands of genre right. movies and just recognizing like what's a cliffhanger and what isn't like what's, you know, what's surprising people with what you've, you know, what they already know in essence, what you've seeded right. them with, you know, what's the sort of the reasonable expectation of takeaways and these things is always predicated on emotion. Mm-hmm. And that is, I'll let, you know, the unlikely event, anybody out there is listening to this and, uh, you know, is like, has any interest in this kind of work. I'll let you in on the secret of this kind of work. You got to make sure the cops have feelings mm. and you got to have beats and bites of the cops saying, I felt bad. So I decided to do this or whatever, you know, in essence, like because the actual the lockstep of investigation really doesn't if they're all investigation driven, quote unquote. But but the lockstep of investigation drive is based entirely on emotion at a storytelling level. And I'm sorry, I feel like Robert McKee here all of a sudden, but like (laughs) that's how it works. And and that's why I get the gigs, you know, it's because like I kind of understand that. That's what I end up doing in the rewrites and stuff. It's just, you know, because people just skip over this stuff. Right. The sort of the TikTok of like, they looked here, they looked there, da, da, da. like you just, you have to actually move it on, if not emotion, then at least decision. Right. You know, I, I saw a thing, it made me think this, so I decided to do that. And people, you know, I, it's it's essentially the same, same story mechanics that are like involved in any kind of uh, whatever drama, you know, for want of a better term, we're using the ancientest word right. possible. And, you know, to wax pretentious about it, uh, you know, it's in Aristotle pretty much from the start. But like mm. you just you have to have that cycle of recognition and emotion and decision to move through these things. And like it's for whatever reason, bizarre reason, it kind of comes naturally to me. So off we go, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. And, and I mean, and these are it's kind of I guess it's kind of a mix of story. It's it, basically it's a, is it like a mix of different crime, different crime? Like, is it murder mostly? <laughs> I, generally speaking in that arena, mm-hmm. the, it's murder and the crimes have to be adjudicated because there's a huge amount of anxiety about uh, litigation down the line. Mm, I see. I know? see. Yeah. Because it, it's, you know, it's true, but you have to, you have to, you know, you got to shave the potato down to, you know, kind of friable size, you know, right. 43 minute and 30 second size. And so like things fall by the wayside and things get moved around a bit in order that, you know, you can kind of, you can sort of strike at those act outs or tease outs or whatever you want to call them in a way that like that reflects the material that you're given by the field producers, but that also makes, you know, keeps people's eyes on the TV set. Well, I mean, maybe, I don't know if I'm reaching a, a bit here, but I actually, it makes me think one of the movies that you picked to talk about, I mean, I guess 
I don't know, more than one could fit. You picked a Bud Bedeker movie, or I, as just a director, and and, and I, I, I watched uh, The Toll Tea. Because one thing I was just conscious of is how tightly, you know, s- structured it is. And just also just with his movies. Oh, God. With his movies generally, you know, there's not a minute wasted, you know. I mean, it's with something like oh. Seven Men From Now, it's, it's almost in the title, you know, something like that. Yeah, there's like a deadline. <laughs> there's a human deadline built in the title. Um, but I don't know. Is that, is that, that's probably not exactly the kind of genre movie you're thinking of because he does so much more with it. But I don't know. That seems to seems like one possible connection. Uh, it, is, it, it is definitely one of the kind of the genre movies that, that I'm thinking of. And, and like, I mean, I, you know, I was looking at a couple of the, the titles the other day as a sort of wool gathering for this. And just the, the recognition that like, I, there's at least two or three of those, and I, you know I don't want to digress this to death and just sort of assume people know where we're, we're, you know what we're talking about here. But the, uh, the of the Bedeker films that he made with Randolph Scott, which are mm-hmm. eh, kind of academically known as the renowned cycle, I don't never really recognize what was cyclical about them. But the, they're almost all 78 minutes long, or at least there's a bunch of them that are like. And to me, that's like well, just pretty much every TV show I work on is like. 4330, 4430, like, mm-hmm. and you just got to wedge it in. I mean, the thing in Seven Men from now that I love, and I, I rewatched it recently for the thing that I did for, for uh, Nick Zine, is um, that Lee Marvin is the heavy in it, and he's fantastic in it. And his characterization and his portrayal and his role just grows, and it's just that full. I mean, Lee Marvin is one of these actors that he's so physical. Yeah. I mean, in addition to having, you know, there's one thing that's a constant in all of Bedeker's uh, films. I feel like, and this is kind of a wide brush to paint a lot of movies with, but like, I feel like, you know, really good genre movies, they really thrive on very good actors. And those very good actors have to have really good voices, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Lee Marvin's voice, the the pairing of his physicality, because he just has this sort of I, you know, choose your own cliche, like this panthery, you know, I mean, I think John Borman described him as being like a ballerina, mm-hmm. um, in addi- you know, having that, that voice in addition to it at exactly at the 15 minute mark in seven men from now, you see the back of his jacket for the first time. And it's just like, you can just flick that switch. Like it's just, okay, it starts. His plot has now started. Right. And I swear to God, it is exactly at the 15 minute mark, you know, <laughs> whatever it was, 78 minute movie, yeah. you know? And I, you know, some people might say like, well, that's formula or whatever. And it's like, no, nah, it really works. It really works. And not for nothing, like 78 minutes is sort of, it's kind of a lost art form as, as a running time. Again, I, you and Manola, I, I think she mentioned, uh, you know, like thirties Warner brothers movies mm-hmm. being like, you know, 62, 63, 65 minutes long or whatever. Like, I think that's a really good running time. And I, you know, I, yeah. I, somebody told me once, I don't know if this is true or not, but somebody told me once that Walt Disney had this hang up about, and of course this is no longer the case with any Disney feature length cartoons, but he insisted that cartoons needed to be under, I forget what it was. I think maybe about 80 minutes or whatever, because he just felt it was sort of exhausting to people to look at that many illustrations uh, uh-huh. for that long. Hmm. And, and there is, I, I, you know, my wife and I in the viewing that we've been doing here, you know, especially since the pandemic, like there's, there's some truth to the idea that like keeping it succinct and simple, but dense is maybe longer. It, it's, a, it's a greater uh, recipe for success for us, at least, than kind of having a bunch of long, doughy, reflective spectacle. Right. You know? Right. And Bedeker was just the king of that. I mean, it just moves person to person, voice to voice conflict to conflict like it's like a they're like swiss watches yeah maybe more like alarm clocks like a swiss alarm clock you know <laughs> right a cuckoo clock yeah it's uh 
No, it's, yeah. it's so true. And I mean, when you watch one of his movies or, or you know, the ones you're mentioning that are in, in the in the 60 minute, 63 minute range, I mean, you watch it and it's just, it, I just feel like my eyes were like wide open the whole time. And at the end, I'm like, well, what was I really missing? You know, I, I don't, it's, it's like, it, right. it's like you have, you have a car that weighs like 500 pounds and it's like, I don't even know what I'm missing. It's still working. And I agree with you. I think the heavy is also something that's really great about the tall T because, oh, yeah. you know, you have the kind of villain in, in, in chief, the head of the gang. Oh, I guess I should maybe just describe the story a, a, a little. So yeah, the tall T is about uh, Randolph Scott is a... I guess he's a cowboy who's just about to start his own ranch. He's, I guess he kind of is tired of being a ranch hand. And so he's about to start his own farm in the middle of nowhere. So it's going to be a bit, of, a bit tough. But he, he, is like a, he does like a gamble with uh, an old friend of his who runs a ranch and basically makes a bet over wrestling a bull, you know, as you do, uh, in, in which he ends up giving... <laughs> He ends up giving up his his horse, uh, so that finds him walking in the desert, and he then get, he gets a ride with a carriage uh, that's been hired by someone who has just married the heiress of a of a copper magnate, and th- and the, all, all of them in that in that coach are then they pull into a station that's been taken over by this gang uh, who is just hoping to rob just a regular coach. But then when they learn what they have on their hands, it becomes like a hostage situation and a, a ransom situation. So you have, you know, you have the elements, you have whatever it is, just like four or five people in this isolated location. And I, I don't actually know anything about game theory, but whenever I hear about game theory, I think it is basically one of these Bud Bedecker movies, you know, where people are gaming out their decisions uh, about to survive. And anyway, that was all by way of getting to who the head of this gang is, this gang of, I think it's three or four guys, which is Rich, uh, Richard Boone. Three guys. Three guys, yeah. Richard Boone, who maybe has a few points in common with, with Lee Marvin and also just being like this kind of towering uh, physical presence with also a great mug and a great voice. And actually, I- Yeah, beautiful baritone. Oh, yeah. And he's actually a guy that I I especially love a role in uh, in this movie with Marlon Brando that I always forget the title of, where it's also actually like a hostage situation. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's from like the late 60s. Oh, the Hubert Kornfeld one. Yes. Didn't you guys show that at 92Y? <laughs> we did, and I've already forgotten what it's called. But yeah, that is the one. And he's terrific in that uh, as well. Night of the Following Day. That's it. Yeah. Also a great title. Yeah. So yeah, and he's kind of a master of, of menace. Who here ha- has a character where he's is given a bit of a you know uh, a, a wistful kind of tender side where he's he's thinking of a ranch of his own as well, and so that kind of adds an interesting thing to to the mix. But I I hadn't seen this. I think I'd seen this in, at Film Forum. I don't know if they did a Bedecker series sometime in two thousands, but so I was really glad to 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 see it. And and this is something. This is one of the um, in the fifties cycle that, that you were mentioning i think right so yeah so cold yeah it gets I, you know what uh, film history being the, the absolute swamp that it is you know <laughs> it's I, you know and it was it was one of the challenges in setting up that thing in, in nick's zine is it like well they're they're alternately known as the renowned westerns but you can't really call them the named after um randolph scott and his manager's production company but you can't really call them that because the production company changed names and so they're also there were some of them were produced under the scott brown mm. 
uh, rubric rather than renown, et cetera, et cetera. But essentially, it's a half dozen films that, you know, the constant in all of them, including in um, Buchanan Rides Alone, which doesn't have a credit for this guy, uh, the, the constants are Bedecker, Randolph Scott, and a writer named Burt Kennedy, who... I, you know, I was sort of acquainted with from uh, the, the vintage that I am, I would go to the movies with my parents in the late 60s and early 70s. And by then, Burt Kennedy, I'd like having no idea, you know, having so little idea of these movies that when they make that Randolph Scott joke in uh, Blazing Saddles, which I saw in first run, I had no idea what they were talking about. But this guy, Burt Kennedy, had made by then or made over the course of the late 60s, and early 70s, like, I don't know, half dozen, dozen uh, Westerns that are all really jokey and they all you know they always have, end up having these sort of fights in the mud and there was there was a couple of pictures that he made with James Garner support your local sheriff and support your local gunfighter and it really are it's kind of ironic because I, I'm so attached to the Randolph Scott ones you know and, and made a real tremendous effort to like you know to get to know bud and you know a bunch a bunch of other stuff in the hopes of like sort of decoding to some degree how these like why it is that these uh, films work so well Burt Kennedy's 60s and 70s westerns were some of the things that kept me from really getting into westerns until the 80s. Mm. You know, like I like it was going to the Thalia, like the old Thalia on, up on whatever that was, 96th Street in the 80s. They'd have a three western bill on Mondays, like projected in 16 millimeter or whatever. That's actually where I first experienced the, the uh, Randall Scott westerns. And that's where like, you know, basically if it wasn't super violent or a spaghetti western, you know, I had Clint Eastwood in it, basically. I kind of didn't care as a kid growing up, I, you know, getting turned on to like, you know, Anthony Mann, like essentially America's rich heritage of like anxious, neurotic 50s Westerns was totally like unknown to me until the 80s. And the Bedecker Westerns really are, are I think, some of the absolute best of what to me is like just an amazingly rich and fertile kind of, I don't know, subgenre, you know, like a, a, a strange little sort of title pool of, of, uh, you know, of American movie making. So, yeah, no, absolutely. At one point back when you could do this on IMDb, like, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out, I, I was so sort of confused by, and I'm sorry to digress this to death, but it's, it's worth noting that the front end of tall T is very much like those later Burt Kennedy Westerns in that it's, there's a lot of physical comedy and stuff like that. I mean, there's actually, there's a lot of really amazing stuff. I, you know, I'll tell you something up front. I am digressing this to death. So apology <laughs> withdrawn that, uh, I, the up front, there's. I, I watched Tall T recently, and I hadn't seen it in years, and I never noticed this before. There's, there, it shares something in common with The Searchers, which is equally sort of like magnificent and beautiful and like strangely ungainly and repellent and magnetic movie. When we first meet, we actually meet the stagecoach guy and his son at the top of the movie. It's it's interesting too because it's sort of it's, it's something that I think Leone modified for the um, you know the, the the guy that's building the station in uh, in Once Upon a Time in the West. There's you know the stagecoach. What we established is that there's this this the world that we're in is incredibly fraught and dangerous and anxious because the stage guy comes out with a gun because a guy's riding up and what it's setting up is that, that Randolph Scott is there and that they're buddies and it's him and his son. And the guy, the stagecoach guy says, you know, like, oh, I'm reaching retirement age. This is no place to raise a boy. And what I realized was, you know, in these kind of movies, the missing wife is one thing, but this guy's retirement age and the kid that's his son is, you know, whatever, seven, eight years old. Huh. We're actually missing an entire generation. Right. Like where are, there ought to, there, there oughtn't just be a wife. There ought to be like maybe a more age appropriate dad. Like right. it's, it, it strays into this kind of like, I don't want to say mythic, you know, but just like, or surreal, but like, kind of like it's, right. it's, it's this strange reality. And the same way that the top of the searchers, 
It took me decades to go, what the hell are these people doing living here? It's it's a desert. Are they raising cattle that eat dirt? Right. <laughs> you know, are they growing crops that thrive in sand? Yeah. What is this? And, you know, what it is, is it's just this sort of, it's this, you know, kind of like dramatic landscape. It's this other planet, basically. Yeah. You know, it's like the, whatever, the the Western Star Trek episode. I don't know. It's just, you know, yeah. and, and what it does is it sort of, it kind of means all bets are off. It kind of means it, 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 it helps to me at least that we're going to wind up going back and forth between like kind of awkward comedy and intense brutality. I mean, this is a movie that has not one, but two people's faces getting shot off with shotguns. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is a movie that has a kid going down a well, you know? Yeah. And at the same time, it's like, you know, there's the funny bull riding and they're like, I'm, you know, I'm like the, the fight over the water trough. And they're like, Oh, Willard, I hit you with the canteen, you know, <laughs> kind of stuff. Right. And like, if it's if it's taking place in Valhalla, you know, another really bizarre thing in it is the the female lead in it is played by Maureen O'Sullivan, who is uh, Mia Farrow's mother and is a lovely, lovely woman. And her okay. character is predicated on this idea. And everybody, all the men in the movie keep saying like, God, she's so homely. Right. It's a shame she's so homely. And this guy married her for her money because, as you can see, she's so homely. And Plain. She's gorgeous. She's a beautiful. Yeah, yeah, she's just, you know. She kind of like has this sour expression and I think they made her up a little weird, but it's just like, you know, it's like, this is just bizarre. So the suspension of, it puts this tremendous agency in what people are saying and it puts in it, like Mm -hmm. it totally puts it on the actor's shoulders that they like, they just, you know, it's like a science fiction thing. You just have to persuade people that like, yeah, the planet's in peril because of whatever, you know, fill in the blank or whatever. Like, yeah, she's homely. So the husband's a gold digger. So the, you know, and everything else when in fact, like she's gorgeous and this makes no sense, but like, <laughs> give me more. You know? Yeah. You wonder, yeah. What, what are they doing there? And I really, for some reason this time I noticed in, you know, in dialogue, someone says he's the richest, richest man in all the territory or something. And I'm like territory, you know, like this isn't, we're, <laughs> and it's also this, it seems to be this transition point of the railroads coming in. Cause someone mentions that, that basically like gobbling up towns and putting the stagecoach out of business is, is, is sort of thing. So there, yeah, there's all these things flickering at the edges. So I really like the idea of what you said that it's basically people are just sort of maintaining their existence and by what they're saying, you know, it like, it's sort of force of uh, what you've already been doing for so long. It's not, it's not a lot supporting you. And so it's, yeah, it's, well, yeah. You know, as sorry, you know, as as is, I think always the case in, you know, in like in really good genre filmmaking, you know, again, 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 it's, it falls to the actors. And what you see in the tall T and you see this in, in all of Bedeker's movies is these really great luminous little moments of gesture and, and, uh, you know, bits of business basically like the, uh, the Arthur Honeycutt character, who's like sort of this, you know, kind of all purpose Gabby Hayes kind of, you know, like Western trope guy. Uh, you know, there's this whole little sort of like little kind of drama that they have as old friends or whatever at the top of the movie before things get really sinister and sort of as a coda to this thing, Gabby Hayes, or I'm sorry, the, uh, Arthur Honeycutt's character, said uh one last time as just before the scene or the sequence ends he says well how about that drink one more time because he's been trying to get uh the randall scott character having a drink and as he does it he just i i you know it's assume it's something they worked out but it's so great and so sort of throwaway and perfect and luminous he just reaches out and sort of tugs on his i think it's either his saddle or his chaps as he's doing it and it's framed in such a way that like you either see it or you don't but it's like it's a really cool acting choice hmm. and it really, it lends this kind of believability of like, 
you know, considering this, like it, basically this Western environment, this like weird unconscious Western environment that they're in, like is essentially hell on earth. Yeah. Everybody's so playful, like r- r- despite that, everybody's so playful and like people take such great, like weird pleasure in like, you know, whatever Richard Boone's character, he has all of these beats where people get hurt in little ways and he cracks up. Laughing. Always. Yeah. You know, like, the, uh, the, the, uh, Maureen O'Sullivan's character like burns her hand on the coffee and it's, it's Richard Boone has a great laugh, you know, and he doesn't let it go. I mean, he's like, he's like just cracking up for about 30 or 40, 40 seconds, which is an eternity, you know? And then subsequently Randall Scott stride. Is that his name? Like whatever. Right. Randall Scott's character smacks his head on the, on a on overhang on a lean to or whatever it is. Right. And like, and that's the funniest thing ever. <laughs> so the movie's just full of these, like they're really well cast, right? And they're really well written. And somewhere in that kind of magic synergy, I, you know, they shot these things for 18 days or whatever. I don't know where the rehearsal time came in or whatever. Like these actors are just coming up with these great pieces of invention that really sell the whole weird reality that really mm-hmm. it, it's kind of this card trick of kind of like you know you oh you know, like don't worry that like you don't need to think about the fact that she's gorgeous and they keep saying she's ugly because look he's laughing because this person got hurt you know right or he's t- you know he's tugging on this guy like trying to get him to have a drink or whatever like as if they're little kids it's it's kind of magical you know yeah there's yeah. in seven men from now there's this incredible bit that lee marvin does where he arrives ahead of everybody else and he's in the saloon, and I think it's the saloon keeper, it's been a while, is asleep in a chair. And he just does this thing of like waiting for his chair to lean back and waiting for his <laughs> and finally kicks it out from underneath him and wakes him up. But it's stretched out so long, you know, and it's not yeah. to the point of like drawing attention to itself necessarily, but to the point of you really want to know like, what's going to happen when he knocks this guy's chair? I think it maybe might even have a shotgun in his lap, the guy that's asleep in the chair. <laughs> but it's just, it's so great because it's just like, again, I don't want to sound like sort of seminar guy or whatever, but it's, it's human behavior. It's real human behavior, kids. Right. This is, you know, this is what you're supposed to be writing into these things. This is what's supposed to be coming out of them because that's what, that's what holds people's attention, you know, not funny names and whatever the heck else, you know, not like the, the sort of goose step logic of, of history or whatever. And, and sorry, filibustering here. But the, the other thing too, is that Bedeker also, he'll check in for process anytime, which I think is all the, one of those great secret pieces of, of, of film writing that's kind mm. of fallen by the wayside, like to the point of, you know, uh, Randall Scott's character arrives in the, the, the beginning, there's the station man, there's his son. And uh, it's like, you know, like, Hey kid, why don't you water my horse? And the father says, oh, yeah. hang on, son, you know better than that. And the kid responds, of course, dad, I'll walk him around a bit. So, we don't, because apparently I don't know anything about this, but apparently a horse will get sick if it's being ridden for hours and then just drinks all the water it wants mm-hmm. to. And so he like so walks right. the horse around and it's just like it extends and kind of like it, it f- more fully kind of extends reality out in a way that like you just don't bug out about like, who the hell are these people? Where's the wife? Why is this guy so old? You don't ask these questions because everybody's acting like it's the most natural thing in the world. Kind of cool. Kind of miraculous. Yeah. Yeah. Always, always the sense that the the lives continue on screen, which also has become a kind of critical cliche, but you know, is, is not achieved as, as, as often at all. And especially not necessarily in something that's has such a one, two punch like this, like this plot, yeah. you know, like you don't necessarily have to in, in, inhabit these worlds uh, as as this manages to, to to make the clock work. But I mean, to make it actually be something, you know, engaging, you, you do. And I, you know, just talking about one of the one of the other interesting actors in it. You know, one of the, one of the heavies uh, in the actually, he's kind of played off as a, the killer, the kind of of, of the group, like designated yeah. killer. 
uh, I guess it's played by an actor, Henry Silva. The youngest, youngest ever uh, member of the actor's studio. That's who you're talking to here, pal. <laughs> That's right. He's, I mean, he's just so cold, like just has this cold kind of empty glare. And, and yet you're also aware how young he is, yeah. because especially at one point he starts riffing about all the girls he sees in this one town. And, and he just, you just immediately like, oh, wow, you're also probably still just a teenager or something. So like, you're already a sociopath, <laughs> but you're also just this kid, which makes it more... Makes it more chilling in a way. Um, but I thought he was really, really, really great. Um, and just, he's always this like uh, backbeat of just, just like coldness yeah. in it whenever they come back to him. Like whenever you think something might uh, diverge from the logic of the situation, it's always like, no, he's going to kill this person at that point and this person at that point. So yeah, he's, I liked his work in, in, in this as well. One other thing, Elmore Leonard uh, wrote yeah. the story. Treatment of yeah, I, you know, I don't, I've never read the original story and I probably should have pursued that because as I said, like I did go through this kind of fruitless effort to, you know, kind of decode these things. It's just like way to, way to ruin the fun for myself. But yeah. uh, the, I, my guess is I've been considerably more familiar with Burt Kennedy's work. That's not fair. I, I know some of uh, Elmore Leonard's stuff, but not that well. And uh, you know what I really, I think like most people, I know Elmore Leonard's film ad- adaptations more than the actual books. My guess is that the whole, that whole sort of front section of the, you know, Mr. 1040 and the bull and all basically all the jokey stuff that might've been stuff that got floated in by Burt Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in addition to there having been an incredible industry of television Westerns that like just nobody outside of kind of retirees or cultists or whatever is aware of now, like hours and hours of that programming on at night, there was an incredible industry of Western yeah. pulp writing like western pulp magazines and i'm guessing that that was probably like a you know Mm -hmm. 20 page story about a cowboy being held prisoner by these guys and you know and the ransom and everything else and how it is that he ends up escaping and you know again speculating that uh, bert kennedy tacked on the front half in order to have it get it into this sort of aristotelian kind of symmetry you know although i doubt he would have used that those words to describe it yeah. He's not very well used, but the guy that plays the other uh, Gunsel is a terrific actor named Skip Holmeyer, who he has, he's unforgettable. Mm. And there's a Henry King movie called uh, The Gunfighter, which I recently uh, was alerted to the fact that Criterion put out, which I just, it's like, oh, happy day, because I, yeah. I just, I didn't think that was a movie that people really cared about. And I care about it a great deal. And he has this, there's a beat that this actor Skip Holmeyer does in that, a climactic beat in the end where he goes, how about it, Ringo, at, a, at Gregory Peck's character, which is it's just one of those things where it just gets stuck in my head like mm. music. I mean, it just pops into my head now and then. Like, uh-huh. And he's so <laughs> emphatic. And also, I, you know, Skip Holmeyer is like royalty to me because he's not only in two different old Star Trek episodes, but he's essentially a featured villain in the hippie episode and the Nazi episode. And who on earth could say that? I mean, like that is that is the most incredibly bizarre <laughs> and magnificent achievement. Like right. he's like the Nazi planet Fuhrer, or not, I guess whatever. He's sort of the Nazi planet Goebbels. It's been a while or whatever. But then he's what's Doctor Doctor Severin? He's the the head hippie in the the like those the, the the sort of hippie jam Eden episode of, of Star Trek. And it's really great in both. And again, a guy like guy with a long face and a great voice, you know. He only passed away a few years ago, too. He was, I, I don't yeah. know if he kept working, but, uh, but he was around, he was around to, you know, till about 2016, I think. Oh, wow. That reminds me. I mean, I do want to make sure people know about 
Uh, I mean, we had Nick on the show. I don't know if he was actually talking about it yet, but the a zine uh, that he's put together. And you have an interview with Bud Bedeker in, in that issue. That's that's something that I've been aware of for a while. And so it'll be kind of amazing to finally clap eyes uh, on it. What ha- what happened was, Bud's, the first of those Randall Scott movies that Bud Bedeker made, uh, he made with John Wayne's production company. And he uh, Bud and John Wayne got along so poorly. I, I could be wrong about this, but this is the sort of gestalt I got from talking to Bud or whatever. And at the time that, you know, John Wayne's production company, John Wayne was a smart guy and a smart businessman. And he hung on to the, you know, the sort of the finished product of, of uh, most of the movies that he produced. And so basically to his dying day, his, his uh, estate shepherd was his son, Michael Wayne. And he basically told Michael Wayne, don't ever like reissue this movie. Like, you know, I hate that guy and whatever, at least to hear Bud uh, tell it. And wow. so what had happened is in 2000, whomever it was that absorbed the copyright from Michael Wayne or, you know, whomever owned uh, Seven Men from now, restored it and put it out. And it played at Telluride and it played at a bunch of, you know, in sort of the repertory bar, sidebars of a bunch of prominent film festivals, including the New York Film, film Festival. And Moving Image uh, did a Bedeker, I think they did a retrospective. I know they did a uh, Pinewood dialogue. Uh, David Schwartz did a, like had a conversation with Bud because he came in for the movie. And so I pitched, I was freelancing for Time Out uh, at the time. And that was my first ever gig doing that kind of work. And I, much to my astonishment, was able to actually get a, uh, get a, a green light on an interview with him because, you know, it's a pretty obscure guy. Certainly for time out in, in 2000, you know, and certainly, like, you know, as I, I feel like right. for good or ill, like, you know, kind of the, the, the makers of old movies and old movies themselves are, it's a lot easier to read about them now because just contemporary movies are so God awful. But back then, you know, there's still, I mean, you know, there was still anybody's game. And, uh, and so I got on the phone with Bud. And, and he was hilarious. I could barely get in a word in edgewise. I didn't realize this until later. You know, a guy that really went around and around with Bud was Dave Kerr. Like, I don't know if you've had him on or whatever, but he'd be a great guy to talk to about Bedeker because what I, what I didn't realize is that Bud basically told the same stories to everybody. What One of the many, many things I'm kicking myself about is that like I went kind of inadvertently went off script only a couple of times and asking him about Audie Murphy was one of those times, which is like, I just read a biography of Audie Murphy and I was just, it was, you know, long story short, it's like really bizarre and intense American personality. I like killed, killed, I don't know, 80 men in one day, uh, you know, at the behest of the U S army during world war II, like won the congressional medal of honor was a, a absolute, like hopeless uh, degenerate gambler. You know, I, I, you know, maybe as a result of PTSD, what have you. So, you know, Bud and I talked about a bunch of this stuff. Right. I did this long interview. I had never gone to journalism school. Nobody had ever told me the dumbest thing you can do is to show somebody the, the piece you wrote about them before you actually show it to your editor. But Bud asked me to, and this is how long ago it was, to fax him a draft. I faxed him a draft and he freaked out and said, like, I didn't tell you any of that stuff. So it would wind up in the art of, you know, because there's, you know, this stuff about, you know, he name checks Hitler. I mean, there's, there's like, there's a bunch of stuff. I, the, the, I, you know, one of the manifold, one of the layers of the crepe layers of unfortunateness about this experience is that I, not only did I not keep the tape, but I didn't, I, you know, you may have done this too. Like I sort of cherry picked what I transcribed, knowing what it was that I thought would wind up in the article, little realizing that like, even of that, a lot of stuff right. was going in there. So he had, he, apropos of Joseph Cotton, he told this incredible or, or set this incredible scene of talking to Joseph Cotton on the phone about making uh, The Killer is Loose, 
while Joseph Cotton was on the beach with Deanna Durbin, because of course, Joseph Cotton was, I, I think in Bud's words, the most notorious coxman in Hollywood. So I was just like, wow, man. Like, oh you know, and I had this like, I, this indelible vision of Joseph Cotton and Deanna Durbin, who's, I was, I think at the time, probably 20 years his junior in like, period appropriate swimwear, you know, like, you know, smoking luckies and like, you know, like getting ready to go back to the, the, to the, the cabana or what have you. It was kind of a cool thing in that way. It was a kind of uncool thing when Bud just lowered the boom on me. And then the editor timeout who I can't remember his name and I, you know, whatever he had a magazine to put out. He was so lukewarm about it. And he was like, he got hot about it again because he saw seven men from yeah. now at Telluride. And then he cut the thing down even further from like, you know, the, 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 the G rated, or the, you know, the, the Bedecker rated version that I wound up actually filing, he cut it down even further. <laughs> right. So I was stuck with, you know, what it, it basically is like 12 pages, again, no tape and not a full transcript. I just didn't have the patience to transcribe the whole thing. It's just basically block quotes. And that's what wound up in Nick's thing. When Bud came to town, I wound up, I had a, a short film in the LA Film Festival and my brother was a DP and he also had a, uh, a film that he'd shot was in the LA film festival that year. And the way it lined up, I flew out to the LA film festival to introduce my stupid short stayed at my brother's house. And Bud had said, if you're ever in, and this is before he read the bad draft or whatever, that if you're ever in out West or whatever, like, yeah, I come out there every now and then I might be out there in, in September, what have you. And so my brother and I drove down and hung out with him for the day. And, you know, like, like you know, he showed us a video that he'd made. And his wife was absolutely charming, et cetera, et cetera. He comes to New York, totally blows me off. We go to the, like, I, you know, I went the, the press screening for seven men from now in the New York film. I was like, Hey bud, it's me. And he's like, absolutely wouldn't even look at me. It was mortifying. I mean, it was so humiliating and awful. Um, and then we, I go to the Pinewood dialogue thing. My girlfriend at the time is this amazing filmmaker. And she was like the one great passion that she had in life actor wise is the actor Warren Oates and Warren Oates is the second lead in, uh, in the rise and fall of legs diamond. Oh, and yeah. so there's like my, my girlfriend at the time raises her hand in the Pinewood dialogue and David rec recognizes her and, you know, the yes. And, and she said, I'm wondering if you can tell us anything about Warren Oates and Bud just turns and looks at her and goes, no. And it was just like a dagger. I mean, it was unbelievable. So oh my God. I tell all this to my brother and he explains that he actually ripped off a bunch of pain pills from Bud's medicine chest while we were at his house. And I thought it was because of the stupid article, but my brother, you know, he was, he's, he's gone now, unfortunately, my brother is, but you know, it's one of the reasons why uh, he was this crazy degenerate guy. And like, he ripped off a bunch of drugs from Bud. So and like, and like and, and that was, you know, for a guy of that generation, it's just like, you know, those two guys came down and they, you know, cause Bud had had like two hip replacements or whatever, like back to back, you know, and like whatever it was on, you know, was on, was on pain pills. <laughs> And, and fucking Rob helped himself like to like to a bunch of these things. So like that was that was the end. And, and like and Bud died a couple years later. Oh, no. and, and I and I love the, the the aforementioned girlfriend. We weren't together uh, anymore, but she reached out and said like, oh, well, you're sort of your your nemesis, Bud Bedeker, passed away. I guess you can take a certain amount of pride in the fact that <laughs> he ended up dying on the same day as George Harrison. So he got no press whatsoever. So that was the end, you know. <laughs> Oh my God. That, I mean, it must have been great just 
kind of hearing about about the shooting of, of these particular films. I mean, which which I not to like preempt the interview, did you, but did you talk about like Tall T or Seven Men from Yeah, now, we did. Or? I mean, I, you know, I, it's the, I, a writer at the LA Weekly at the time described Bud as I, I think the phrase that he used. It might have been FX Fini. I, I don't remember exactly who, but the, uh, the phrase he uses is that he sort of feasted on his own anecdotes. So it was kind of one of those things where it's just kind of like you'd say something and then he would just like he would tell one of these stories. You know, one of the things that's not in the piece that I, I recall from memory is he, he said like, and if you again, like, in the, you know, the, the so-called renowned cycle, quote unquote, like hey, these movies aren't a cycle. There's no continuation or whatever. It's like, you know, it's variations on the same theme. He said that they would go out. I, one of the weird things was that he kept referring to his DP, Luchin Ballard, who he did actually make a couple of movies with. But the the bulk of the, the renowned cycle films were all shot by a guy named, I want to get this right, Charles Lawton Jr. No, something Lawton. A guy named Lawton. It was like a basically like contract DP at Columbia at the time. Very good. A master of truly bizarre day for night, even by 50s Western standards. But what he said is that they would go out and scout for the next one of these movies that do. And, they, you know, they do them in 18, 20 days or whatever. And it was like all like kind of like clockwork. You know, they'd be scouting and sort of go like, OK, you know, this part that, you know, we'll we'll look from here. The, you know, we'll set up here and we'll, you know, go down there or whatever. And at one point, supposedly, he describes Luchin Ballard d- doing this. Uh, they kicked in the sand and discovered the metal spike they'd driven in the ground the last time they'd been out there to set up the exact same shot, basically. It's like, yeah, of course this looks good because oh, we, wow. we, we did, yeah, you know, it was essentially Randy riding up between these rocks in the Sierras or whatever. Like we took it from exactly the spot on exactly the lens you're talking about this time last year, you know? So there was that. I didn't, I didn't, oh I didn't God. get into a lot of this stuff that like, whatever, if I knew then what I know now, like I would have talked about rehearsing. I wouldn't, you know, I, I was just, I wasn't as interested in actors then as I am now. And I'm basically like, actors are like, it's kind of the whole thing for me these days. You know, I, I would have talked more about the rehearsing mm-hmm. and I would have talked more about the casting and I would have talked more about like, you know, it's, it's it, in, in a way, it's something I really admire about the films of Nick Ray, you know, the Nick Ray studio movies is that he would get these actors of like completely, you know, whatever Joan Crawford and Sterling Hayden in the same scene and it still works. You know, it's like two actors mm. are like, couldn't, it couldn't be yeah. more different in background or whatever. Like, you know, what's the process of doing that? Like, what, like, you know, what's, you know, what, what winds up being the salient thing when like, you've got 18 days to turn these things out, like, and you, you can't really, you know, there's, there's Henry Silva, who's like studied with Strasburg, Skip Holmeyer, who, who knows, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Randolph Scott, who like, I, you know, he did describe Randolph Scott, basically, if he wasn't working, he was just like, he was looking at the finance page of the LA Times, because that was his thing. Huh. Wow. And then getting them all together and making it work. Which which they did. You know, I, it's, I think to some degree it's the power of the script because it's just like, it's very specific and very clear. Like, you know, like, who's he to me? You know, like, where am I in the scene? What happened before? Like, everybody knows all that stuff. You just read it and it's like, it's right there. You know, there's no, I don't think there's a, much necessity for discussion, you know, which is kind of ideal, I think. Yeah. You know, and then just these people that just take great pleasure. Yeah. And he also, I, you know, one thing about Bud is that he did have, you know, he made, I, I don't know, umpteen movies at Universal and then all of these like sort of, you know, like really kind of stuff that he kind of like admitted was pretty crappy, you know, at Monogram and um, and Eagle Lion and stuff. He did cast a lot of the same people over and over again. I mean, he'd worked with Lee Marvin at least once before at, at Universal and he's, Lee Marvin's got a great role in a, a pretty bizarre Rock Hudson sort of, I guess it's a Western. It all takes place in the swamps in Florida called Seminole. It's like sort of a cavalry Western Indian thing. Um Huh. You know, so he'd worked with a lot of these guys before, like whatever shorthand they needed or longhand for that matter. Like it just kind of got done. I did. I made an effort to I, I wanted to kind of, again, like sort of decoding what it was that like 
because the writing of these things, I just figured there had to be classical antecedents. I mean, they're just so, they're, they're so perfectly formula, formula in the most flattering way possible that I noticed a guy had written a very good yeah. uh, bio of Burt Kennedy on IMDb. And back then you could still, you could email people or like message people, you know, like it was like two or three iterations ago of IMDb, like sort of like, you know, mercifully they cut out the comments and all of that stuff. But like, you know, these things are, are no longer really like oh, yeah. uh, wide open. And I emailed this guy who identified himself as Jumble Jim, and he'd written all of these incredibly, like very well-written and very well-observed biographies of thumbnail bios that they have on IMDb of like, you know, kind of across the board, like really interesting people, really obscure people and stuff like that. And this guy wrote me back and it turned out to be this actor, Jim Beaver. Do you know who this guy is? He's on a bunch of TV shows that are immensely popular that neither of us watch, but he's, he's, I'm guessing... Uh, you know, uh, superstition or something huh. like that. He's on like some like sort of like kid ghost. Thing. Oh yes. All right. He's he has a, oh, yeah. he has recurring uh-huh. roles on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul as a weapons uh, gun dealer guy. But his his sort of contemporary uh, kind of like leading moment uh, is he played Whitney Ellsworth on uh, Deadwood, the bearded kind of sad sack noble bearded uh-huh. prospector guy on uh, on Deadwood. And, you know, whatever, we exchanged a few emails, but like he was this extremely knowledgeable and sort of passionate. And, you know, I, the, the, the great failing that I made as a, as a filmmaker, a would-be filmmaker or whatever, is that I honestly thought as a kid that like the way you became a movie director was by sort of obsessively examining the movies that you liked the most and finding out every possible thing you could about how they're made. And as as my personal history indicates, that's actually how you become a film critic. It's not actually how you become a filmmaker. So whenever, <laughs> and, and you find in other disciplines, like, like anybody, anybody that goes to fine art school, anybody that trains as an artist, they learn everything about art history. It's just a given. People that go to film school, they don't really teach mm-hmm. film history. They don't teach the history of, you know, the nuts and bolts history of production. They certainly don't treat, uh, uh, teach you know, the business models and the way that the, the you know, that that has changed the money end of it. Cause you know, God forbid, it's only the most expensive meeting you could possibly undertake. You know, like why learn anything about that? But Jim Beaver is one of these guys that like, I, I just, because of his passion and I think because of his interest and, you know, his focus or whatever, I, it, he just, I mean, he's written books. He wrote a great book about uh, the, the old Superman TV series from the fifties. And in fact, I could be wrong about this, but I think his huh. character on Deadwood is actually named after one of the producers of the old uh, Whitney Ellsworth, I think is one of the producers of the old Superman TV series, which is like, you know, I grew up watching that thing. It's, it's bizarre and great and wonderful. So I, to me, it was just kind of like, wow, you're like, are, are you God? You know, like, like this guy, this, this guy really has it figured out. Like the, it being the thing that only I care about, you know, like me and my friends, you know, whatever, like, so Oh, wow, this is like secret scholar. Totally, I, I had no totally. Idea. No, God bless him. You get him on the get him on the pod. Actually, I mean, I I, I know someone who's a, a super fan of uh, Supernatural, Sheila O'Malley. I, you know, I like uh, we are two unthreateningly masculine young guys, like solving supernatural problems, and I think Jim Beaver is like sort of their mentor guy or something. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, this is this is this is the the saddest, most pathetic subgenre of viewing possible superstition is something I'm only really familiar with by like accidentally looking at somebody else's TV monitor, like while I'm on like an elliptical at the gym, that, that is literally all I know about it. Right. It's like, there's like hair gel and like right. cheap digital special effects. 
and Jim Beaver, who's magnificent, you know. <laughs> that, that's how we're exposed to to uh, other culture. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you can't say I'm not uh, up to date. That's right. <laughs> I'm hip. <laughs> that's part one of my conversation with Bruce. Look out for part two featuring the insane film, The Human Factor, and more. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. This episode was co-produced by John Gaudio. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs>